You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. I hope you're well. The interview subject coming up for you is James Lascelles from the Finnish, and I suppose British outfit, because James is from the UK originally. The band's called Wheel. A stellar new album. It's out now, actually. By the band is called Resident Human. This chat took place about two weeks ago or so. I've just been flat out, so uh, I thought I'd release it after the album had come out so that you guys out there could have a bit of a listen to what was going on. There's plenty of stuff on YouTube and also the streaming services, as you'd expect. We go into a few other subjects outside of music in this one here so a bit like the conversation with greg from cradle of filth if you don't like politics there's probably a point about halfway through where we switch over and start talking about subjects under that broader banner so just tune out if it's not your bag no dramas but anyway here he is james lascelles from the band wheel hi mate hello good evening how are things over there they're not too bad, and, and look, my sincere apologies. I, uh, I just uh, we've had the kids all day, you see, because the the roads flooding just all around us, you see. And uh, mate, when you got the kids at home, uh, the hours tend to blur. <laughs> so, um, but otherwise, mate, the flooding is um, gosh in Australia. You know, we either have bloody bushfires or flooding, especially around this part of the world. And um, people are managing. I think it's not been as um, Probably not been as bad as maybe the news reports have been saying in terms of we're used to it now. So a lot of people have got access to sandbags, and are they, if they did build previously in areas that were too too low, uh, like below sea level, so to speak, or near to it, they've stopped doing that now. So some of the damages are lost. Some of the damages will be minimal, but it's just the idiots driving through floodwaters and their little, uh, I suppose you know the equivalent of a Fiat Panda. Holden Barina, this sort of thing. I'm wondering why it gets washed down the stream. And our, our issue today, as I say, mate, was we just couldn't get the kids to school because the um, the roads are all blocked off. So I wouldn't say we're blocked in, but it's uh, there's one way in and one way out at the moment. But still, the rain stopped now, so fingers crossed it stays this way. Well, kudos for hanging in there. I think between the pandemic and the, the acts of God in nature, I think you guys are doing pretty well to hang on. You've not had the easiest 12 months over there. No, it's been crazy, mate. I mean, we've all we've all dealt with COVID. But before COVID, remember, we had... Uh, so I, I remember this because I was in news media at the time. There was the New Zealand volcano where a lot of Australians died in that. Remember the volcano that blew up on Mount White, I think it was called, or White Island or yeah. whatever. Then we had the severe bushfires, which a lot of people are still recovering from. Then it was COVID. Now it's this. So there's been maybe, maybe the... It's too broad a stretch to put the... The volcano in the mix there but still it affects it affects society it affects your outlook and this covid thing mate has just been i don't know how i've been doing a podcast for a long time and the last 12 months mate it's basically all we've been talking about yeah i totally get it honestly same over here in europe um and the end i mean it's great that the the vaccines are looking like this promising way forward but um, I'm really done expecting any kind of guarantee that this is going to permanently change the situation because we, we don't know um, there's a lot of um, talk about what would happen if a strain arises which is not affected by the vaccine. And let's face it, that's a question of when, not if. 
Uh, and, you know, that's kind of bleak, especially for my trade. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I think um, it, you look healthy. I feel relatively healthy too. And I think um, maybe that's right. as good as it gets because hang on to the uh, small wins we can take. At the moment, I absolutely agree with you. And there's not a night that I don't go to sleep where I, I don't say a prayer for for my kids' health first and foremost, my two daughters, and then my health. Because if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. And uh, I, I just, mate, I've got to say this, I just hope that 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 the powers that be so well the world trade organizations their various forms okay they haven't tried to the old saying about never let let a good crisis go to waste because mm. a lot of the data i'm in news media so I, I i know where to go i'm not saying it's it's not secret stash data if you know what i'm saying i just know where to go to find data and the covid deaths um as a singular meaning without the comorbidity they're nowhere near as bad as what people think, yet whole economies have been locked down on the basis of them. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I'll tell you that now I can't stand any of that QAnon bullshit or what have you. But um, I, I just like to look at the actual hard data and I like to look at the way uh, and then, say, correlate the way governments have then, what their actions are in relationship to it because the cure can never be better, worse than the disease itself. And we've got suicide spiking, we know that. You've got manic depression kicking in with people calling... Uh, whatever the English uh, or the Finnish equivalent, uh, British or the Finnish equivalent of uh, lifeline would be. Many people just reaching out to someone to talk to a psychiatrist, this sort of stuff. All this stuff has gone through the roof and people are, are increasingly on government uh, benefits and, and, and I think uh, none of that sort of augurs well for people's, uh, um, for their state of mind. And I, and I just hope that these the powers that be feel like I've got that in mind, that we can do this for a period of time, but then this vaccine if it does work let us get back to doing what we do which is a functioning civilized society yeah i mean i mostly agree with you i think, I think the only point of difference worth bringing up to that point is that some of the data released from the uk currently is saying that in the first month alone where the covid restrictions were enforced so during the first spike over there uh, there's an estimated twelve thousand additional deaths which have not been reported as COVID-related. They're just other illnesses where people haven't been able to receive hospital care. Yes. Um, yep. Or maybe they've received um, additional complications due to having COVID on top of their uh, existing illnesses. And mm. there's no um, certainty about how those deaths have been reported. But I think, you know, years from now, uh, the numbers of people who've died as a consequence of the pandemic indirectly is going to be utterly staggering. And uh, you know, it's all yeah. pretty bleak when you look through those lenses. And uh, I'm really glad it's not my job to sort this out because I don't know what else I'd do. Uh, yeah. For some people, COVID is extremely dangerous. And I think um, it probably if this happened very quickly, like it did in most parts of the world, I'd probably go, okay, fuck, let's mitigate. What can we do to minimize the number of people who are going to die? Mm. Um, but I think it's been nearly impossible to get right. I don't think there is a solution where, where nobody loses. And uh, I think that's the really tough part to understand. I mean, it's a, it's a nearly impossible thing to fix. Yeah, you make you make a great point there that I didn't raise, and that is such a great you know that 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 people have died because they haven't been able to access regular services. And I know I know that that has happened in Britain, and um, and you you've just got to think, man, look, these these vaccines at the moment we're not getting them i think the european union has actually put a, a halt to australia getting the astrazeneca vaccine i think it is i could be wrong i read what i read and then you sort of move on to the next thing and read something else you know what it's like with the uh, the internet these days and social media but um i understand where our, our the rollout of vaccines into australia has been stopped but 
there, there's a compelling event now, which is that the, the pandemic is about to hit full stride in Papua New Guinea, which is only a couple of thousand kilometres north of me here, very close. In terms of the actual border, is only five kilometres away from us, something like that, in terms of the, the sea border. But it's very easily to tra- it's very easy to sort of cross that. So it's it's not out of the question that, particularly with the amount of trade that goes on up north there, and people going between uh, the far north of Queensland and Papua New Guinea, that it could make a jump into Australia that way. So we, we do need the vaccines, and uh, the the there's a particular type of vaccine. Any other time, of course, I'd be able to recall um, that it's not a vaccine. Sorry, but the um, the checks that they do. I know Joe Rogan was talking about he and Dave Chappelle when they were putting on their shows. They had those spot checks, the spot tests, mm-hmm. which were, and I think that sort of stuff should be rolled out. And and the reason I mentioned that just to segue into the music side of things is because it would allow you guys to get back to doing what you do best, which I do feel is extremely important to people's health and well-being, their emotional well-being. For you, the musicians, the creators, I'm a musician too, so I guess I'm a part of it, but you've got an in-market album here, Um, Resident Human. You know, it's a a killer release, by the way. But Thank you very much. The thing about music, mate, especially like this, it's got to be played live. That's the fire. That's our fire pit. That's where we all go to have a beer and shake hands and and just feel normal again, man. So I just want us to get back to doing that. I feel completely the same way, and not even just as a performer. It would be wonderful to go to a concert and watch a band play. Like I think I'm not sure which one I miss more at the moment. I think both are very very high on my list. Um, and of course, we're, we're mortified at the prospect of doing so in a way that would make anybody unsafe. So we're very very conscious that we. Um, the best thing we can do is watch what the government guidelines are and try and follow them. I know the Netherlands, uh, I think last weekend, had an experimental um, live, live uh, festival where they, that everyone was COVID tested who went there. They were supposed to wear masks, but of course people didn't. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what the results are from that because maybe that is kind of the direction in the short term at least this needs to be done. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, these, these bloody, I know for a fact these video concerts i don't know what you'd call them but they, to me they just look like you're watching a youtube clip from five years ago or what have you but those live video events that bands are putting on they're not profitable i can tell you that and and they're not the same and so we do need to get back to being able to do this and is that is that something that you guys have thought about too because that's that's the the key issue through this whole pandemic when you've got an album like this resident human that does deserve to be listened to by a broad audience Obviously, you're talking to people like myself, a podcaster, and there's other all sorts of other indie media outlets out there and earned media outlets out there that you can chat to. But is that the strategy? you just got to talk to as many people as you possibly can and spread the word? Yeah, at least that's how we viewed it. Um, it because we can't tour, of course, uh, we've just been thinking, how else do we market this in a way where it feels sincere and not like we're really forcing it? I, I've got similar reservations to you about the, the YouTube feeling concert format. Uh, I've seen some of them done extremely well, where it's been almost like a show. They've, it's been done at a venue with multiple cameras yeah. and, and a light show. Yeah. And a, uh, if you've got the budget to do that, I think really interesting stuff can be done. I think the issue comes when you're a smaller band like us, where really you're counting the pennies and uh, the, the budgeting is very, very tight to be able to do stuff like that because we're still quite new to the scene. Um, and to, to make something like that, it's just not realistic for, for us to do that. We are exploring some options with uh, with something, maybe internet-related content of us playing the songs. Um, luckily, we're, we're really well connected here in Finland, so we might have a way to do that to, to cut some certain some of the costs. But um, but no promises at this stage. If we can find a way that we feel represents the music really really well, we'll do it. But otherwise, we're just going to hold off until we can play live again. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good strategy, mate, too. And and look, I've spoken to plenty of Finns in Britain, but I don't think I've ever spoken to someone from Britain in uh, in Finland. So I'm making an assumption there. So are you from Britain, and and how did you end up in Finland? I am, yeah. Well, I was at university in northeast England, and I was playing in lots of different bands. I was a drummer in a folky jazzy band and a, a drummer in a professional covers band for a while. I played solo gigs with an acoustic guitar, which were my main income. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote for a prop band at the time where I was just singing for the group, and in fact, some of that material ended up on our first ever EP. Um, but one of the guys I, I performed with moved back to Finland and won the Idols competition here. And he just okay. kept on inviting me over to play. <laughs> and uh, and it played. And I was at a point pretty much where it was uh, take a leap of faith and play music that might not be a great fit for me stylistically or quit altogether and move, move back with my parents and get a real job, you know. So uh, I, I decided to jump into the fire, so to speak, and to move over here and give it a go. And, uh, that, that band really wasn't for me. Uh, I think I thought... There were things about it that were enjoyable, like vocal harmony arrangements, and all that was really interesting. It was like a puzzle to solve. But I think everything else around it, it, it was just very vapid, to be honest. It, it wasn't really uh, anything that really spoke to the soul. And I think after a while, I became a bit disillusioned with the whole thing. Um, and uh, I wasn't making a whole lot of money doing that either. Um, yeah. got to the point where I wanted to get married, and I couldn't afford my wedding. Uh, so that was the straw that kind of broke the camel's back. I briefly went into software sales, and uh, then I started getting all these offers to um, to play more solo work. So I ended up kind of sliding back into it that way. Uh, and one of the last shows I played with the Idols went up was a TV show here in Finland called Tartu Mikki, which roughly translates to "Grab the Mic." Uh, mm-hmm. It's a karaoke format where members of the public will go into a karaoke booth, sing a little bit of a song. And in the studio, if we knew the song, we'd hit a buzzer, the band would start playing, and we'd sing a little bit of the track. And the, the guitarist in the house band of that show was the other founding member of Wheel. We just got chatting after the show, really hit it off, had a lot of common musical ground, and um, we never thought of doing this thing as a career. It was just like a hobby to start with. And uh, the first demo we recorded after playing together for three months went so well that we thought, hey, this is kind of good. Um, let's get this professionally mixed. And uh, we were blown away by how well it turned out because we tracked the whole thing in two days. Uh, and ever since then, we kind of knew we were on something special and we've been going at it full steam. You're a seasoned musician. You've tried your hand at pop music. You've got a killer band here. And, and my, my interpretation of it is the meeting point between Tool and Stephen Wilson. And uh, you've been in software sales as well. I've got to tell you, I've, I've got an IT background. I'm well out of it now. I mean, I'm doing journalism and uh, writing. And as I say, I've come out of news media. But um, ha- you talked about the financial side of it there. And I don't think people understand who aren't musicians. People have this legacy view, I think, of what you, what, what it is. You know, you release an album, you get a deal, they give you all this money, you go on tour, blah, blah. It's unbelievable how common that view still is. But, of course, it hasn't been like that maybe for about 25 years or something. That's just what's being sold yeah. through the movies or what have you. But but for you, are you at a point now, though? I mean, it might, you might, it might not be the case, certainly because of the, the whole COVID scenario, though. But are you near to being in a, a place now where you've got the balance necessary for you to be able to continue to craft music? Um, I guess the short answer is yes. Um, uh, we live in a country where there are this all kind of state funding, which you can apply for, which, which has been extremely helpful. And uh, we're definitely generating income as a band ourselves. Everyone's really invested in what we're doing. And especially right now, all of us are just getting whatever work we can, doing whatever. 
and uh, we're investing back just to keep everything afloat. We managed to make a new album, which we've done pretty much completely independently. Uh, we've sourced all the cash for that. So um, it, it's it's definitely part of the whole thing. I think it's like when um, when people talk about politics, I think they, they underestimate how much of that is focused on funding and making sure you've got money in the bank to pay for, for your activity. And it's not that different to being in a band. Uh, the only difference is I think there's a lot less taboo about sourcing funding if you're a politician, whereas for a band, it's kind of the unwritten rule, but you don't speak about it. Uh, but it's... Um, don't get me wrong, we're fine, we're doing okay, and the prognosis is looking really, really good, and so far the reviews of the album are looking fantastic, we're really optimistic that when we can tour again, we're going to be able to do so in a sustainable way, but um, you know, we live in a country which really looks after bands, and I just keep thinking about the scene in general, and how many countries don't do that, and uh, I think that, that kind of makes me worry for the future of the scene, like a uh, like you alluded to, I think back in the 90s, there were no matter how brutal the record company band relationships used to be, and they weren't good. Mm. I think that there were more income streams for bands than exist now, and uh, especially making music. Uh, the old model used to be uh, you tour to promote a record, and now it's you make a record to promote a tour. It's just completely flipped on its head, so and true. touring is yeah. really the chunk. You can make some cash from it. So, uh, and again, I mean, um, I think anyone listening to this might wonder, you know, do I just have delusions of grandeur and am I expecting a mention? And it's really not about that. I think uh, most musicians I know, and even without naming anybody, uh, some musicians who've been seemingly quite successful, I think most of them just want to pay their bills. And uh, that's about as far as their ambitions go. And many, many of them who they don't expect have second jobs, even ones who you think might be prolific and very successful just by the legacy. Uh, and I think then you end up with this difficult question of how much do we value music in society and what is a reasonable expectation um, for a musician to be able to earn? And uh, I don't have a satisfactory answer for that. I think that's very subjective and it depends who you ask. But um, yeah, it, it, it's an ongoing struggle. And I think if people want you know, things like music festivals and original music without huge corporate interest invested in it to continue, then um, people need to question what they're willing to pay for it because streaming is not making bands enough to survive. No, and that's that's another recurring theme, especially because we're now at about year five or six of, of this nebulous of streaming of music. So basically, I think if any musician at this point in time hopes or thinks that they can make any mo money from streaming, they should go back and listen to what Tom, Tom York had to say about, from Radiohead, of course about streaming where they were sent sent checks for, and this is Radiohead, sent checks for $7 or whatever, what have you, for, for X amount of hundreds of thousands or millions of views or what have you. It's exactly what you say. And and for young musicians, I think they've got to basically get used to the fact that the first 10 to 15 years post-school, if they choose to pursue this craft, is going to be nose to the grindstone travelling, get used to using uh, Final Cut, Premiere Pro, all these sorts of things, being able to do everything in-house. Have you found that for yourself there you've had to learn how to do basically, I call it the Rob zombification of everything. You just learn how to do everything and people basically say, oh, my God, here's someone who's got great leadership qualities here. I'm going to try and help them realise their vision. Has that happened for you? It's, I think absolutely, yeah. Like When we started the band, um, that was pretty much my whole ethos back when I began writing as well was um, – I wanted to have a broad understanding of all the instruments, of what you can do with each one, how they interconnect. So from the writing upwards, that's always been my mentality. Um, I taught myself several pieces of songwriting software. I was originally on Logic until I got so mad at the cost of everything with Apple that I made the jump to Pro Tools, and I'm now doing it through Pro Tools and Windows. 
Um, I've learned video editing, like you said, Premiere Pro. Uh, my wife's got a very nice video studio set up, and I've, I've dabbled with that. She, she's taught me a little bit, and I've learned some myself. Mm. Uh, I've built websites, which I never thought I'd have to do. We've had to learn social media marketing, which back when the band began, we, we thought we don't want to touch that with a barge pole because uh, we just weren't interested. But it, it's essential now, especially if you look at how the, uh, the money has changed in music in general. Um, it's too big an advantage to understand how to use that stuff, not to do it unless you've already got a very well-established audience. And uh, you know, all, all of this sounds very bleak. It sounds like I'm just focusing on the negative. I think the, the upside is that um, we don't necessarily need a label in the way we might have done 20 years ago as a band. And, and I think that's true for, for most bands. I mean, in a way, it, it's convenient because if you get a good deal, it outsources a lot of the responsibility. But um, we've always wanted to keep our artistic control and a tight grip. Um, uh, I know bands who literally have nearly all of their music written for them and market it as something they've done themselves. And again, my, my goal isn't to name or shame anybody here because it's irrelevant. It's just how the industry works. Uh, we have complete control over what we make and everything we've made has been made by us. And that's been the case from the start. Uh, and that's something we're really passionate about continuing doing. Um, so, so there are lots of ways you can hit it, but I think that the more feathers in the hat we can produce ourselves, the more independent we can continue to be. Uh, and especially there are four of us within the group, and we, mm. we all have various uh, roles that we assume, and some are very you know, boring back-end stuff, just the running of a business. Um, we've got one guy who's entirely focused on, on marketing and social media, and uh, that's our bassist, Aki, who's the same reason that our, our Instagram page has become this meme page with occasional band information. <laughs> um, we're just trying to find a sincere way to do it and something that feels yeah. like it's authentic and it's us. Uh, and I think especially because of the density of some of the lyrical topics we do, we've been quite passionate about you know, lightening up the social media because, I mean, at the core of it, we're an entertainment product. It's supposed to be fun. And, you know, if people aren't enjoying it and if it's just this heavy, uh, you know, continuation of the news, then why would people listen to us? At least that's how we've always viewed it. We, we need something in between. Yeah, great summary. And, and I think part of what you're saying there too is you recognise where the opportunities existed and you went for them and you were intelligent about it. But tell me tell me about something else. You, you mentioned the lyrical themes. I, I haven't heard of, and I on purpose waited until we had a conversation. I didn't Google it. Hyperion Cantos, tell me everything I should know about that because I understand it's that's inspired a lot of the lyrical theme. Absolutely right. Uh, I discovered the book last year during a period where I don't mind admitting I had a bit of a burnout. Uh, we'd um, had a very, very busy period, which had gone on for, I guess, close to 18 months at that point. And once all the instruments were recorded for the album, we had no vocals written whatsoever. I just kept on postponing it, thinking we'll have time to figure this out later. And it was like hitting a wall. We had nothing books and there were no gigs. Um, so everything just stopped and uh, I was sleeping for 14 hours a day and not feeling very inspired. Mm. Um, and around this time I discovered this book and I don't believe in fates for, for a second, but it's wonderfully well-timed when I found this because so many of the underlying themes in the book really spoke to me. And uh, I think they'd speak to a lot of people with how we all felt last year, particularly um, having to really face the choices we make in our reality in a sense where we could actually take a step back from our norms and kind of readdress our relationship to, to this whole thing we're part of, this, this global system that we are all um, to varying degrees of willingness participating in. <laughs> uh, and I think um, the two major themes that really spoke to me were 
coming to terms with this seemingly hostile but ultimately indifferent universe um, that we inhabit. Um, I think so much of what happens around us, well, we delude ourselves that we have any degree of control over affecting change, either in a social sense or even in our own communities, like among our friends or families. And I think ultimately it normally comes back to we can only really change ourselves, how we feel and how we behave. Um, and that used to frustrate me, and it still does sometimes, but I think there's something liberating with letting go of that and just focusing on the significance of the now and um, being purposeful in the choices we make and grateful for the good things that happen within our own lives. And um, I think throughout the song, that, that's definitely the conclusion I came to, you know, the notion that if everything will turn to rust and none of this was owed to us, then all we experience will have to be enough. And um, that was something I really um, internalized from the book. Um, in, in a similar light, Hyperion deals with the notion of mortality, which is a major theme through the third and fourth book in the series. And uh, this idea we're all on this linear train journey from birth to death. We can't change the speed of the direction of the train. And we're also immersed in our own experience of time that we forget that everyone else we interact with is having exactly the same existential crises that we are. And if they're not now, they will eventually. Um, and yes. I guess just remembering to be empathetic towards other people um, having that same experience because it really is the ultimate leveler. Everyone that's ever lived and everyone that, at least as far as we're aware, will ever live will have to face these same uh, questions and come to terms with the, the limits of our existence. And last year, strangely enough, I really feel like I, I made some personal progress with this and I made some peace with... Uh, with the finite nature of, of all of this. And um, I think the result, just like the uh, previous song I mentioned, is to just feel a greater sense of gratitude and, and purpose in the decisions we make and the significance of the now. Uh, and I think we're, a lot of us live in the future. You know, we're always thinking about the next thing we should anticipate or our next goal. Or we're mired in the past, maybe the wrong thing we said at a meeting a year ago or maybe some baggage from our childhoods. And all of this just distracts from the only truth there is, which is the presence in, present is everything. And um, I'm trying to be more mindful of that. I don't always get it right, but every time I feel myself drifting away from it, I try and pull myself back to anchoring for today. Because even things like this conversation we're having right now, you know, that's a purposeful choice we've both made to interact in this manner uh, for, for different reasons. But still, at this point of connection of this humanity, that's something I want to try and be more kind of mindful of and be more grateful for, I think, from now on. Yeah, man, you made, you raised so many great points in that. The big one I take away is that sense of gratitude, that awareness that we have an opportunity here and it's actually up to us to make the best of it. I, I was just talking to my sister-in-law before about um, quantum physics. How is it? Oh, is it atoms? I think it's atoms behave differently under observation than compared to when they're not observed. So science is actually telling us that a lot of this, uh, this things like meditation, mindfulness, that's the key word, mindfulness, it will be summed up in that. It actually has a scientific basis. And the more mindful we are of ourselves and our actions, and to your point there about, I, I totally understand and I can identify uh, uh, with your point there about leading life in the future because I think we all do it but I think the way it's not just our society you could probably go to Afghanistan and be living in the Bora Bora and you'd be still thinking about the future because you'd be thinking about where to get food and water from and 
all sorts of other things about your safety, this sort of thing. So we're constantly projecting where we're going to be. So we're acting in the present, but we're thinking about the future constantly. But it always does come back to at what point does life not resemble some kind of suffering? At what point are we able to say, take a step back and be genuinely in the moment? Now, if I'm truthful, and I will be, um, there's probably been a handful of moments in my entire life outside of childhood I'm talking about in my adult life where I've been able to be that way, like in the birth of my two kids, maybe when I was married. Although marriage, it sounds like you've been through it, can be a very stressful experience because you've got to get all the families involved and the like. But there's just not that many opportunities, again, for you to be uh, to be in the moment. So do you, do you find when you're writing about those sort of things, is it stream of consciousness, the lyrics, do they come out that way or is it far more strategic? It's way more strategic. Um, I, I really agonised over the lyrics this time. It, it took me nearly four and a half months to, to write all the lyrics for the record, mm. uh, which is way over double the amount of time it took moving backwards. And I think part of that was the burnout. I think part of it was the complexity of the new material. Um, and, and I think part of it was this time I really had a sense before I wrote a single word that especially for Dissipating and Hyperion uh, and Resident Human, that they were these really big songs that required really big subjects um, to kind of tie the whole thing up together. And that's not the only way to approach it, but I think that there's, uh, I've always been very you know, logical and scientific about my approach to writing. This part was completely gut-driven. It was just this feeling that, that they need these expansive, um, larger-than-life and um, almost meta-subjects uh, to kind of justify the structure and the flow of the music. Um, and uh, yeah, it, I think there's always this push and pull between a, a sense of what's right and, and knowledge that this is the way things should go. Uh, and uh, especially with the last records, I think it just, I really got a bit more comfortable with it, the feeling side of it. I think before I've tried to control it more. And I think letting go and failing um, led me to, um, to ground I never thought I'd cover in our music. And, uh, you know, rather than trying to preach about the whole thing, um, which is always my concern, and I, I think about it a lot when I'm putting the words together, um, I just wanted to share my own experience and see if anyone can see any kind of mirror in that, because it has been therapeutic um, exploring these subjects in this way. But the last track as well, Resident Human, is exploring a concept I learned about in therapy, which is uh, the notion of um, the metacognitive state of the, of the observer which was explained to me through the metaphor of being the mountain. Uh, just a notion that the weather can change, but the mountain just is. Forests grow, forests are chopped down. People are born, live, love and die on the mountain, but the mountain just is. And um, without judging, it just observes what's happening. And that was kind of um, a coping strategy with how it feels to observe the world for our screens. And especially the, the bleakness of the past five years, especially where it sometimes feels like the whole world is crumbling around us and um, our natural reaction to that is to, to feel emotional about it. And whether it's to feel anxiety or anger or frustration or hopelessness, I think all of those reactions, that, that might be the only thing about it we can actually control. Uh, and I think trying to separate um, those emotions from um, just analysing what's happening around us, is it, it's also something I'm not nailing on a regular basis, but I'm trying to be more mindful of it moving forwards. Mm. Uh, and I think especially again last year just um, having so many choices taken away from us and having to take a step back it's been a more necessary coping strategy than um, maybe it has been in the past 
Yeah, gosh, yeah, so many great points again there. Um, but I'm, I'm drawn to ask my next question, okay, which is based on George Floyd because I understand your song Movement is about what happened there. So I don't think at any other time in history there were more eyes on a, on a single episode than, than what happened there in Minnesota, I think it was, of course. But that obviously had some effect on you, certainly enough for you to want to write a song about it. So what can you tell me about the song? I mean, right off the bat, that like you say, the events were incredibly moving. I'm not much of a crier, but I, I was, you know, shedding a few tears watching that. It was. I don't even know what motivated me to watch it because um, I very rarely click on uh, on stuff like that. But I just felt this is something that needs to be seen. Um, and at the time, I thought this is going to be a rallying point for humanity because um, it's so hard to to label this um, incident as something which is polarizing. You know, an innocent man was murdered in broad daylight by authorities that taxpayer money is, is used to fund. And uh, and that is, in my opinion, fundamentally wrong, and it remains so. Um, and I know it's not the only incident of someone being um, killed by the police internationally, but uh, as you say, that uh, everyone's eyes were on this, and it really resonated with a lot of people, myself included. But I think what was uh, the most interesting part sociologically about it was what happened afterwards, where um, online that this rhetoric... Um, it was full of conflation and this unbelievable venom. Um, everyone was strawmanning each other. There was no goodwill yeah. about trying to, for both sides to try and meet up and discuss a way forward. Um, and it, there were, you know, fucking terrible taglines on both sides. Like, um, it, even on the side which was pro-change, I think that the tagline defund the police is a terrible bit of marketing. Because I think uh, anyone who um, might be resistant or afraid of, of regime change uh, for lack of a better word, um, is going to be less amenable than ever to, to discuss it because um, defunds sounds a lot like destroy. And uh, even though that's not the case, and um, if you dig deeper, it's talking about the reallocation of resources, which um, I'd argue uh, are some pretty damn good ideas. I think we've we just got to come back to the central point, which is I think nearly everybody agrees that what happened to George Floyd should never happen to anybody. And then you've got to start asking the harder questions, which is um, what can be done to prevent something like that happening again? And there are no simple soundbite answers. I think it's um, it's a mixture of ending the legacy of systemic racism globally. And uh, that's something which requires both um, systemic change and also personal responsibility. Uh, a friend of mine I went to college with years ago posted after seeing this that he said there are times in his life where he's heard people being racist and he's either said nothing or done nothing. And um, with the exception of times where his personal safety would have been at risk, in which case I think it's completely understandable he would have been silent. Uh, I think there are times when you hear people saying stuff we don't like where for the sake of social cohesion we might let them go. And I think challenging that um, or challenging any situation where we hear that being done which undermines a political, sexual, religious or ethnic minority. I think that's the personal responsibility bit and that's the part where we can make a personal difference to this moving forwards. And uh, that really resonated with me. I thought that's completely true. And I bet if I was uh, super honest and look back, there are times I've done the same thing. But the, the systemic solutions are more difficult. This is not, um, fortunately, as I thought it was when I wrote the song, a situation which is only American. Uh, there are cases in most countries globally where the, the police have um, have been brutal against the public and often against um, some of the minorities mentioned before. 
Um, I don't have any good answers, but I was just venting my frustration, trying to exercise my own demons about um, just just how terrible it is that we live in a world where that kind of thing happens. So we think we're so woke and progressive online. We think we've solved so many of the uh, of the issues and errors of the past, but we have really short memories and we keep repeating the same mistakes. And we know where the the end goal is. We know the price of silence if um, if we don't challenge this kind of abuse of authority and uh, and it continues to its natural ending point. And um, I think we need to remember where that ending point is and um, hopefully um, be more mindfully aware that we can be part of a solution that prevents it from going that far again. Yeah, we, we live in, we always live in interesting times, but right now it's particularly interesting. Andy Nyo, who is gay, Vietnamese, was beaten up in an Antifa rally. I screenshotted a tweet from a so-called white liberal calling Candace Owens, who was a black conservative, the N-word. And I've seen the videos of white liberals calling black police officers the N-word. And you think, if that's the reaction from this, I'm sure George, George Floyd in whatever dimension he is now observing all of this stuff going on, pretty bloody confident that is not an outcome. They know the men are nothing about the guy outside of what has been reported about his incident and a little bit of insight courtesy of Wikipedia or what have you. But I can't imagine that he would uh, advocate for any of these things. I mean, of course he wouldn't. But my question after making those statements is, and I've made this point only with few people because I think, I think you'll have a good answer to this. Do you think we're doomed and destined to be tribal? I'm on this side and you're on that side and I'm just going to use whatever words that I've got or even actions to silence you? That's a great question. Honestly, I don't know. I hope not. Uh, I, I think even if it's an evolutionary tendency to be tribal and uh, the safety and numbers thing and uh, to pick our team, uh, there's another song on the record, Ascend, which was written about the notion of copy-pasting our views rather than trying to articulate um, yep. complexity in our own words. And um, I think this directly ties in because um, I think we lose something by doing that. I think being forced to construct our own arguments allows us to shore up our own views and figure out really what we mean. Um, and I think also it, it means that the, what we say will eventually fit us very, very well, whereas but when we're just um, taking a broad ideology and claiming it as our own. I don't think that's actually true because uh, some of these points and the way they tie together globally, it's it's very convenient for a binary political system, which many countries have, Agreed, that, yeah. that some issues have been completed. For, for example, how conservatism is uh, is anti-abortion. Um, like, a, Why do those two things match when we're talking about economic policy? and something about uh, the freedom of women to choose how they use their own bodies. Um, it, it's a clumsy example, but I think there is a sense where through conflation and tribalism, uh, nuance is lost. And um, I think it really gets in the way of any kind of meaningful change in society. Uh, and you know, my views definitely lean left in the classical sense, but um, uh, this whole notion of um, the, the more extreme versions of left and right that we, we see today in the news so often, um, I don't think they're a good fit for most people in society. I just don't buy it. Uh, one of the luxuries we've had in Wheel is we've been, we've been able to travel to many, many countries and meet people from different religions, different ages, different cultures. And um, I think most people want the same stuff. I don't think that's changed ever. Um, I just think... Uh, it's portrayed in a very negative light um, through the media we consume. And I, I think we exoticize and demonize that which we don't understand. And that is also a consequence of tribalism. 
But I think uh, most people just want um, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuff, you know, that they yeah. want uh, a way to support themselves, food, shelter, um, maybe some economic mobility and safety. Um, and, and I think uh, most of that has to come back around to empathy, which um, which really is the, the linchpin of the whole thing. And um, I, I wrote a song on our second ever EP um, called Please about the British media coverage of the Syrian refugee crisis when um, refugees were referred to as a swarm, which is a very deliberate use of language to um, to, to kind of dehumanize this group of people. And so it, it's really no different um, to, to how you see um, media outlets covering the, the aftermath of what happened to George Floyd. I think so frequently um, uh, arguments are straw mans or, or because looting happens, you know, somehow that, that takes away the logical conclusion that police brutality should fucking end and there should be some accountability for, for people who behave in that manner. Hmm. Uh, it's, I don't have any good answers for how, how we solve this. Um, I think tribalism might be a natural thing for humans to do, but I think through education and through some self-awareness, I think we can offset a lot of the worst of it. What's your position on censorship? I think idealistically, I'd like there not to be any. Um, I think you end up in very difficult um, waters when you look at what happened, for example, with Donald Trump, um, who's a great example because he's somebody I disagree with, but he was heavily censored through, through uh, online media, mm -hmm. especially uh, leading up to an insurrection. And but honestly, uh, I kind of get it. Uh, these are privately owned companies who uh, should have a right to decide who's using their platform because um, uh, you know, they're not the government, they're not supposed to represent everybody. But I think there's a real danger that the, the consequence is going to be we will end up with right and left-wing social media and that yep. will provide even greater hurdles to overcome socially um, to get any kind of natural meeting point where people will discuss what's happening uh, in the world around us with each other. Uh, I don't really like where it's going, but I feel pretty much powerless to stop it. Hmm. Uh, I think um, at this point, it's a really good time to say that I believe arts and music in general needs to step up and be the medium between these two factions. And, and to be fair, I don't think most people I've met strongly identify with either one of these factions, but I think the influence is very, very subtle. Um, you know, all of us exist within echo chambers and everything we see of the world around us has been to some degree curated for us specifically or for people like us at the very least. And uh, I think that means that over the past 10 years, the worldview I have and the things I've seen that have influenced me and my behavior are different to what's influenced yours. And that's actually true for everybody we interact with. Uh, and, and that's kind of frightening because um, it's been designed by people, but algorithms are not people. Um, there, there was a study about YouTube talking about um, engagement and the ultimate goal of all of this media is to keep us watching it for as long as possible. And it, it was describing how um, people at YouTube tended to target people with conspiracy videos, for example, because yep. they're very good at engaging a certain kind of person. Uh, and, you know, I think most of it, in fact, I think all of it is utter bollocks. I think... Um, if people want to look at the, the scapegoats in our society, it's not that difficult. It, it's normally you follow the money, you follow the power, there's your bad guy. Um, I think when we're talking about things like the moon landing being fakes, flat earth or QAnon, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's farcical. Unfortunately, it has real world consequences and 
and people die when uh, people who believe this stuff um, act upon these views. Um, so, so censorship, I'd like to think we, we don't need it and I, I, I'm against it idealistically. Um, I just understand that it's not a black or white issue, especially when you look at the fact that people might lose their lives over certain information being shared freely. I'm with you. I'd say 100% on all your views there, there's, but there's a couple of points I want to raise. The decision by the Twitter power brokers to ban, forget about Donald Trump for a moment, the office of the President of the United States from Twitter was extremely dangerous and will we'll, we'll be looked, I believe we'll, we'll, we will look back on that moment in time and say that was a very, very bad decision. If Twitter, Facebook, well, it's only a few these days, isn't there? There's tw uh, Facebook is also Instagram, so that's one. Then you've got Twitter, and then you've got Google, which is also YouTube. So I think there's three. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's the three. Now, I'm certainly not saying you let completely toxic views out there, meaning neo-Nazi views or ultra, uh, the, these communist views where they support the sort of things that Stalin stood for or Idi Amin stood for, which are really just about totalitarianism. I think that there needs to be some form of uh, gatekeeping. I wouldn't call it censorship. But if you've got somebody who has a centre-right position... And they may have supported Donald Trump and their views themselves. Like you mentioned abortion uh, before. They support abortion. They probably support decriminalization of drug use, but they support Donald Trump. They're not a fucking Nazi. Okay, so calling them yeah. that calling them that on, on Twitter or on Facebook is one of the stupidest things that people can do at this point in time because it's driving them potentially toward these QAnon conspiracies which are just made up. They're just bullshit. And, and people, people are doing it tough, man. You know, talk about Maslow's, uh, the, the hierarchy there. The, we, we are given free will, so we do come to different conclusions even based on the same data. So there's the same data set there and people come to different conclusions. It happens all of the time. It doesn't mean we're bad people for doing that. And, and just wrapping my whole point up there, that's why I think censorship is so, it's so malevolent because it does lead to a fracturing and a splintering of society. And the big one, it, it leads to echo chambers, which I think like, like this asshole in the US in, was it Colorado? where he, Or is that another word? Have we had a recently where he killed sex workers? He was targeted sex workers. We, we, you get these people who enter into these echo chambers and they go, right, everybody else is good, but sex workers are bad, so I'm going to kill a bunch of sex workers. Did you see that report recently that came out of the US? It was, it was yesterday or the day before. I've actually been taking a bit of a break from the news. So, sorry to cut across you there. I thought you'd finished. There was a bit of lag. My bad. I was just no, going to fine. say, I mean, uh, firstly, banning Trump from social media being a bad thing, I agree. It's, um, I think that's going to bite people square in the butt because, like you say, he was the president regardless of people's position on his views. Um, with, with the rest of it, I'm not trying to say who people should vote for. I'm completely on your side of the fence where it comes down to, um, I think, if you remove the most extreme perpetrators of left and right politics, which I think represent probably less than 3% of society, yep. um, I think most people you can have a very reasonable conversation with um, and, and I think it's just got to be done in good faith. I think we are so um, abraded by um, by the people whose views disagree with our own behaving badly publicly that I think it erodes all of our patience to engage. And I think that's when the danger really sets in because it, it's it's not a fair reflection on most people's viewpoints. Uh, but, and again, like I said, you know, this is not me trying to smuggle in my own politics. I mean, uh, I'm passionately about equality for all. I think. Um, 
we should make society as equal as it's reasonable to do so, at least in terms of opportunity and safety. And uh, I think everything else, um, I don't know. I don't have any simple answers. Uh, yeah. I think at the moment, uh, you know, no, no matter how bleak capitalism feels, and I think it feels pretty bleak, uh, the reason it feels bleak is we have companies that are as big as countries these days with absolutely no oversight or regulation. And I don't think that's a good idea or acceptable. At the end of 2016, I read a stat that said um, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and I think it was Facebook, had a combined GDP greater than Canada. Um, that was um, that was five years ago now, so uh, I have no idea what the data is currently. But that, that's too big and that's too powerful. Um, companies are able to grow to the size they are because um, governments strike deals with them, and they're literally extracting money out of our societies and putting them in offshore bank accounts, bouncing them around for a deregulated global financial industry um, and to the way where they can pay as little tax as possible. And uh, I don't think that's okay. I don't really have a good solution for that because without some kind of global agreement on how companies should be regulated, there isn't a good way to, to counteract against this. But uh, when we're quibbling over things like handouts for people during a pandemic or, uh, or disability benefits in the UK, um, and in the same breath, that kind of behaviour is allowed to continue. I just think it seems a bit insincere. Like, we all know there's money in politics and that when wealthy companies can lobby both sides of the political races, then they can literally define what the law is. And this is happening all the time. Um, that needs to change. I think uh, that might be the most um, frightening future I can imagine for us. And, and again, you know, this got quite political in this discussion, but more so than I imagined it would. But... Um, I guess engaging pathetically is is the best thing any of us can do, and um, like we're trying to do now. And uh, hopefully, anyone listening to this, um, it will resonate with them and any of the people you know who disagree with your views. Just talk to them and, and be kind about it. Yeah, look, I got to tell you, I, I made a conscious decision to make to to basically open the platform on the podcast to any conversation at all, and because musicians, we are we are sensitive people. We're connected to the world, and and of course, and one of the key reasons, like what you've been able to do, is you you observe the world and you write about it. So I think it's I think it's important that you, you're given a platform to do that. But I always offer at the end of it, if you don't want to include any of the politics stuff, we don't, which happens about half of the time. But uh, but I always encourage people to do so because, as I say, I, I don't believe in in censorship or uh, some sometimes people make points where they're a bit too strong. I think in the past, and they go, oh, especially in the bigger bands. And uh, they think that it might isolate members of their fan base, particularly when Trump was in power. Uh, it's incredible. I've got to share with you. It's incredible how many uh, of, of people are, who are in bands who are very pro-Trump. And we talk about it, and then they go, "Look, just don't include any of, any of that in there for obvious reasons. It'll just make blabbermouth and all these other news aggregation sites, and I'll probably have people sending me vile messages afterwards, which is of course an issue. But of course, I'm always going to honour that. So that'll be my point there. But look, I, I've just got a couple more questions for you. I appreciate your time, okay? Because I know we've we've started this a bit late, and no doubt you got uh, plenty of things to do every day. So, but you mentioned earlier, you said you hit the wall. What happened? Um. I think I had a complete burnout. I've been suffering from anxiety and depression for a long time. There was an insane amount of stress with the band. Uh, and uh, we were just incredibly ambitious with the timetable for releasing and making the new album. But when it got to the end of 2019, we'd just gotten back from a second month of touring with Sowen in Europe. 
And um, around that time, our bassist had left on that tour uh, due to health reasons during the tour, which was uh, unbelievably stressful. Um, oh, God, yeah. It's great he went home, and I'm glad he's okay, and he's doing much better now. But this kind of was the beginning of him leaving the group. So we had two shows. We, we ended up making backing tracks um, to play those, which I never thought we'd do. So we played it as a three-piece with the bass coming through a tape. Um, and I was programming that on a tour bus driving through Serbia, literally um, thinking my hair was going to start falling out. I was that stressed about it. So we got that together, got through those shows. And uh, our new bassist, Aki Virta, um, flew into sub for, for a few shows for the rest of the tour, which he absolutely nailed it. And we hit it off right away. He joined. And um, it's, uh, it's been wonderful having him in the group. That's been really positive. When we got back to Finland's, First of all, um, our guitarist, Ronnie Sepbanen, also decided to leave the group. He's got a very young daughter here in Finland, and he's never been a fan of touring. He loves the shows. He hates everything else. So we, we weren't that surprised this was coming, but um, it was another blow on top of another blow. Uh, so as he left the band, we also found out that we had around 10 weeks to write our next album before the touring in 2020 began. And of course, it panned out very differently to how we expected mm. But the pressure was just ratcheted up to 11 with no reprieve for a very, very long time. So uh, all of this happens. Um, COVID happens and we tracked all the instruments for the album, uh, which was uh, more complicated due to COVID and the timetable was immensely stressful. That ended. I was about to start writing vocals and that was it. I just felt like I hit a wall and I think I've taken on too much. But uh, that's why so many of the topics on the album have been this introspective um, personal journey I feel like I've been on because um, it's literally been what I've been living for the for the past year. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm doing better now. I've still got a way to go. But um, I think it's just a real reminder that we all have limits and um, you can't you can survive for a while working like that. But um, I just did it for too long and I was far too ambitious with um, with what I thought I could handle. And um, I think for the last kind of three or four years, like there's been a steady progression where I've been taking on more and more and the stress has been increasing and it just all boiled over at a very inconvenient time. But in a way, I'm grateful it happened when it did because it was it was inevitable. And at least it happened when the worst thing that happened was we delayed our album a bit. Mm. Yeah, I've been through some pretty serious anxiety episodes myself, panic attacks, and they are extremely unpleasant to anybody who hasn't had one because you feel trapped. It's it's the closest thing to feel like feeling like as in you're in a coffin or a box, but you're out in the open air, and that's why they're so disgusting because you you got nothing nothing that works in the immediate, right right then and there, doesn't? Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, I, I think there've been there are degrees as well, like there are shades of grey rather than black or white. Um, I think for a while it was sometimes I would feel anxiety, um, and it would be triggered by something happening, like maybe. Uh, a curveball being thrown at us in the production process um, or, or, or maybe whatever, something actually uh, literal happening that would cause it. And after a certain point, it didn't require a cause. It was just anxiety all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I still get it some of the time now, but it's it's definitely better than it was. And uh, I'm just trying to take better care of myself because um, I love making music, but I'm not willing to completely sacrifice my health for it. And even making that um, realisation feels like a really big step forward. So in terms of being able to find you guys, I think you've got a Facebook page, obviously. But in terms of, and this is the big one, I always encourage people to buy the physical product from you guys. So how can they do that? 
Um, we are currently being distributed by Wild Thing Records, I believe, in Australia, who've been fantastic. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. Um, so if anyone's interested in buying any merch or CDs or vinyls, they're the people to contact. They've also got all of our, our older stock as well. Um, other than that, if people want some entertainment during the, the pandemic, we're, we're trying to do stuff um, every week on Instagram, Instagram Live, where we've been talking with other bands and um, other professionals in the industry just about art, life, the world and everything. And um, we're also very, very active on all of our social media, particularly um, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So if anyone wants to reach out or just let us know what you think of the album, please do. We'd love to hear from you. Most of my audience, unbelievably, is in the in the US and, and Europe. So is Wild Thing, is that can they go to the Wild Thing website and they'll send them stuff from there? If they're in those uh, parts of the world? Europe, yeah. Uh, I still haven't learned the names of all of our infrastructure, but we um, <laughs> if you go on to any of our social media, there are links to all of it, um, which are really prominent okay. and easy to yeah, I think in Europe it's all very much. So, uh, and in the States, I'm not sure what's distributing it there. But um, I have I've heard good things about it from our American fans. Okay, sweet. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, mate, that's it. Thanks very much for the chat. You are listening, or have been listening, I should say, to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name is Andrew Mackay Smith, and that interview subject. Well, he's British, but he lives in Finland, and he's from a Finnish band called Wheel. It was James Lascelles. Thanks so much for tuning in.